Welcome to the 24 podcast. We are excited today as we continue into season number three as we get things ramped up with that. We are joined by Bradley Adams as usual. So good to have you, Bradley. Oh, good to be here. And we also have Joel Woods with us driving uh, remotely as as we are recording as well. So On location. Good to have you with us. On location. Yes. In Georgia, even though I don't think there's any 24 that takes place in Georgia, but actually the aforementioned 24 legacy that we will never speak of again was filmed in Atlanta. Okay, I believe, but it didn't take place. It didn't take place in Atlanta, though, did it? Well, that's you didn't say all that. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) I just said I just said it was filmed in Atlanta. Okay, well, if you want to take association with legacy, then go ahead. That's all I got. Anyway, so today. So so last week we started season three, and that's where Jack, Tony, and Gael fabricated a story that a virus is going to be spread through a person, specifically Kyle Singer. And they set everything up where there was a dead infected body, and they, they laid out all the different evidence to be able to lead to Kyle Singer and set up the whole thing to where Jack was going to be able to break Ramon Salazar out of prison. That was the ultimate goal. And the reason they were doing that is so that they can be able to gain the Salazar's trust uh, or that Jack specifically could gain Salazar's trust. And then that would lead Jack and ultimately CTU to be able to get the real virus threat, which had not been spread yet at the beginning of the season. But of course, we know coming down with a little bit later here. So that's the situation that we found ourselves in. But during the first six episodes, it wasn't revealed that all of it was manufactured. It was all presented and seemed to be legit. But then as we get into episode seven and eight, we start seeing where Tony comes out of the hospital because he was grazed in the neck with a bullet and taken to the hospital and all that he comes to. And immediately he says, I need to talk to Gael as he comes out. Michelle's like, well, he's actually been a mole. He's He's been doing this and this and this, and he's under arrest. And so Tony gets out of his hospital bed, rips all the cords and everything out, because that's what you got to do on TV and movies is do that and proves that he's as good as Jack, I guess. Is, that's probably what his thing was. And then goes to CTU and tries to confront Gael and ends up having to reveal the whole undercover mission that had been planned so he tells ryan Chappelle this and gets everybody together or, or gets the president together and several other witnesses that are, are there to be able to do this as tony reveals this and then there's a video where jack explains all of it as well and that just kind of totally kind of shifts the focus of the mission that's going on i mean this is one of those things that again sort of bits and pieces of season two and certainly this first half of season three that I kind of remembered on a macro level that I remember that this was a whole undercover mission and Jack did all this stuff because he needed to get back in with the Salazars because Michael Amador had the virus etc 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 the actual sort of minor details of how everything falls into place how you get from the body of health services via Jack breaking room one out of prison to he's undercover how all that happened kind and obviously all the guy else stuff as well that kind of had got out of my memory pretty much so it was nice having spent the first six episodes or the majority of the first six episodes trying to work out how we get from 
we're at point A, how do we get to point B? Having done, having spent so long thinking how that works, to actually have it then get to this point is quite nice. And to look to look back, having remembered it, and go, oh, okay, now that makes sense. Now I get why this happened in this episode because this is this is where we're at now. And it it doesn't just feel like, well, that doesn't track with what I know is coming up. So how how does that work? If you're just watching this the season for the first time and you have no idea what's going on, the Gael reveal, much like the Nina reveal in season one, comes out of absolutely nowhere. I mean, for, for the first. When I watch these seasons back, even though I usually know what's coming, I try to <clears throat> put myself in a space to where I forget uh, everything that's happening or everything that's coming because I want to relive the, the, the surprise factor. And could I see that this was coming? And the Gael reveal was something that the opposite of Nina in season one, where in season one, Nina was 100% risking her life to save Jack for 22 and a half episodes. And the end of episode 23 or whatever it was, all of a sudden she reveals that she's been a mole this entire time. Whereas Gael has been, for the first quarter of the season, had been working solely to undermine everything the CTU was doing. He pulled a gun on Jack's daughter. Okay, that's uh, that's one thing that that they didn't really follow up on that I thought they should have followed up on. But Gael went to great lengths to preserve his cover. And I thought season three differed from season two in that it still had a very globalized threat, but it added a little bit more of the undercover aspect that we saw in season two. Instead of Jack going undercover, they have Jack, Tony, and Gael going undercover to try to stop this virus. And so I thought season three started off a little bit different than season two, but at the same time, it was a welcome start because you saw the, like I said in the season two podcast, you see the development of these characters. You know, Ryan has now replaced Mason as the bureaucrat that you want to see get killed off. <laughs> Tony and Michelle, and the development of these characters is even more prevalent in Season 3 than it was in Season 2. Because in Season 2, you saw development of characters, but you saw a very select few characters that actually progressed differently than they were in Season 1. In Season 3, pretty much every returning character at some point had shown progress and development from where they were in season two the guy Kim point is interesting because actually that forms a lot of the first episode of these six seven to eight pm her having been kidnapped standard 24 for kim be kidnapped when they have the briefing at the start of the next episode with the president gail comes in the room and kim sort of looks at him and we see that and then we don't they never talk they never have a conversation after that up until the end of this section of episodes, and spoiler alert for next week's podcast, the three episodes where Gael is still alive at CTU, they don't have a conversation then either. Um, I think that's the one loose end, I think, that they do struggle with in this. I mean, uh, in general, like the, the plan that they have is completely insane. It, it is complete madness, this entire plan that they've, they've concocted it. It requires so much to go right so perfectly. It, it's just completely mad. Nope. No organization would ever realistically sign off on this. No, well, that's why they hit it. But also, I mean, it feels mental that Jack and Tony and Gael thought that this was going to work. I know it does work, 
but it, it, it relies on so much luck and so much of everything to fall exactly their mm-hmm. way. Um, it is it's crazy. It worked, but it did not work like they had planned for it yeah. to work. A lot of different stuff had to go on for it to actually eventually come back to what their end game was. Yeah, and and you mentioned there about about that there are still like the global threat there with the virus and things like that, because because it was, and so it's a virus that started in Ukraine, I believe it was being sold in Mexico to a potential. I mean, originally, I guess potentially global audience or whatever, and it ends up being a competition between Jack and Nina. And but when we come down to it, and mostly coming to, to next week, we find out that they bring more of a personal aspect to it as well. Like season one, um, season one, the threat was very much personal between the Drazens and Jack and the Drazens and Palmer. And and this this is a very personal thing that comes to play as well. Um, as I mean, the all the events that take place in seven through twelve set all that up and is and all that kind of stuff and so there there is a plan that we'll get into but uh but anyway so we'll talk more about all those things next week as we start learning about saunders and things like that but but we have jack in mexico and obviously a lot of tension between him and ramon um hector and ramon are having a lot of issues as well trying to go through that as jack and hector are almost buddy buddy it seems at this point but but going through all of those things there's a a lot of things there with the auction that's going on and the surprise that amador twisted it and and made it into an auction as opposed to a straight out sell so all of that was not very good for jack's sake but anyway yeah very very awkward with some of the way that they, of course, they had to bring Nina back, which was, I don't know. I don't know if that was a good plot move or not, but Nina. Joel just threw his hand in the air. Yeah. <laughs> Can't trust Nina for anything, but so I guess they just, if they just want to get the, the watchers mad, they just throw in Nina or Sherry. <laughs> we'll get yeah. to Sherry. I think it's it's interesting this because, I mean, we mentioned Hector there. We'll come, we'll come to Nina in a second. Hector is a really fun character who I always enjoy watching but there is absolutely no depth to him whatsoever. I mean, my prevailing memory of him was a couple of his, his sort of memorable quotes, mostly the the one a, sec- a moment before he dies when he goes, the deal is off, and also him screaming Claudia a lot because he does that on so many occasions. Um, but, you know, Vincent Loresca is, is a lot of fun in that role, but he also just kind of, he, he wants Claudia's little brother to basically become the next him and he rages and he wants his brother back and he wants to buy the virus and I, 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 he feels very generic in that way which i think is disappointing i think he deserved better mm-hmm. yeah, agreed um we can all agree that ramon was the more developed of the salazars because honestly they spent more time on ramon you know they they've been building up and developing ramon for you know since episode one so we had more time to you know hate Ramon Salazar. But I thought that when he first got, when Jack and Ramon first got there and the the whole Ramon and Hector playing, you know, good cop, bad cop routine, one wants to kill him, one wants to keep him, <laughs> one wants to, one, one doesn't trust him, one wants to use him to get the virus, you know, the whole back and forth just felt kind of weird a little bit. 
because I mean, realistically, even though Jack has had so much happen to him already, you can't realistically look at him and look at his background and look at his file and think that with the snap of a finger that he's just gonna all of a sudden want a big payday so he could disappear. I mean, that just seems a little far-fetched and um, to me it shows a lack of intelligence on Hector's part to believe that and it's kind of poetic that Hector was the one that really vouched for Jack and he was also the first one to go. I mean, Jack does a very convincing job, doesn't he? He has that whole speech of how he did all this stuff and what did he get for it? Nothing. He got demoted, he ended up with a heroin habit, and he's tired of doing it. And there is, you know, they do very quickly establish when Jack is brought back to the ranch that actually Hector doesn't, you know, he's, he's going along with it, doesn't really trust him that well. He trusts him for the sake of buying the virus. But as soon as they get the virus, they're going to kill him because he's betrayed them once already. He could do it again. The thing is, you are right. I think that Hector and Ramon, the most intelligent, certainly with regards to this, but they're opportunists and they do, and, and certainly Hector does see this as a, as a massive opportunity. And, you know, like I say Jack is very, very convincing in actually establishing his cover. He's broken Hector out of a, an American prison. They, they go on about occasionally about how he's a bigger criminal now to the United States than he is. Jack mentions how he can't go back to the US because he'd be put in prison for the rest of his life. There are lots of these elements at play, so I can understand from their perspective why they go along with it. I mean, you mentioned at the start there the interaction between Ramon and Jack and how Ramon's the most well-developed. To come on to Nina, once Nina comes into it, there's actually a re- almost a sort of a next level to Jack and Ramon's relationship. They become much friendlier. It's just after Jack escapes death again, and Ramon has that very famous line, the man has more lives than the cat. But even, you know, he, Jack tells him that Nina killed his wife, and Ramon looks at him like that's the most horrific thing he's ever heard in his life. This guy stabs his lawyer with a pen eight hours ago, and he's looked at Jack with the most utmost sympathy for the fact that he's now having to deal with the person who killed his wife. You know, Ramon is one of the worst people as human beings this show produced. And he hates Jack and Jack hates him. But even in this moment, in in this couple of hours where Jack is put into this horrible situation, even Ramon Salazar has sympathy for him. I think that's absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. The whole thing with Jack trying to prove that he's over Nina and <laughs> and and try to try to pull it off with a kiss and it's just not working but can i just say that that kiss that jack and nina shared was probably one of the creepiest moments in the entire series i mean really it was by far one of the most uncomfortable and i'm you know i'm i'm a i'm 34 i'm a grown man i've seen plenty of kissing scenes and all that stuff I was uncomfortable. That's the whole point of it. That was one of the most uncomfortable, <laughs> creepiest scenes in the entire series. It's made worse by the fact that it sort of end, it starts at the end of the 10 to 11 hour. And then at the end of the next episode, we cut to somewhere else. I can't remember where it goes to. I think it goes to part David Palmer and then maybe even to CTU. And we sort of cut back into Mexico at about five past the hour. So we're meant to believe that this has been going on for six, seven minutes. They've been sat there kissing. It's just, it's, it's horrible. It, it's horrible. I hate it. It, it, like it's you know, the, the the relationship we've got with Nina at this point, having spent a lot of season one liking her and then obviously 
instantly hating her. And season two, she's again the worst. She sets up CTU to be bombed. She helps with the detonation of a nuclear bomb, gonna kill Jack, etc., etc. And just to see Jack even even maintaining his cover by doing this, it's just it's meant to be awkward. And it, I mean, they nail it. Credit to them because it's the most awkward scene I think that Twenty Four ever did. But oh my good god, I oh. Even 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 back even back at CTU, once Kim found out that Nina was involved, even she asked Tony. Even she told Tony that, you know, my dad couldn't even pretend to work with Nina. Thank you for reminding me. That's what it is when it cuts back just at the start of the hour, back to them kissing. That is the last line at CTU, and it cuts to Jack kissing Nina or finishing it. It's ugh. Yeah. I mean, it's like I say, it's so well made. It's so well. <laughs> planned out and and structured here but it's just awful to watch yeah it's, it's creepy <laughs> of course all that's going on or just before all of that we have chase that followed jack to mexico thinking he was doing the good thing the right thing uh, even though he was disobeying orders to follow jack he was ordered to go back to ctu but he followed jack anyway got a plane followed jack into mexico got himself in trouble, got caught, and the CTU kept trying to get a hold of Chase to to be able to tell tell him what was going on, that leave Jack alone, but turn around, blah, 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 and he didn't want to be found, didn't want to have communication, and, and then when Chase is captured and brought back to the ranch, brought face-to-face with Jack, you can see Jack's face, it's like, Oh my word, you're such an idiot. I told you to go back. You're going to blow this whole thing. His only option is to prove his loyalty to the Salazars by pulling the trigger at Chase. And of course, we know it's just a a test from Ramon because they want to get information from Chase first, but it was just a test and Jack pulled the trigger. And I don't know, I'd say that's probably a, a difficult point in chase and jack's relationship and then chase ends up getting tortured for the next yeah. two hours he has he gets shot through the hand has gasoline poured on that hand he's all sorts of other things that happen to him there yeah it's not not pretty for chase this is what this is what happens when you do what jack would do and you're not yeah. jack bauer as much as he thinks he is as much as he tries to be as close as he is and he is very close when you're not jack bauer don't do what jack bauer would do because it will get you in a lot of trouble you notice through the s- several episodes like CTU has the worst timing ever. They tried to tell Jack about Ramon, like that they had Kyle Singer, like I don't know, three times. And every time they, every time they get ready to tell him, he had just left where they were communicating at, so they didn't get to tell him. Then they try to tell Chase that uh, he doesn't need to go to Mexico. Oh, my bad. Chase has gone dark. So CTU has by far probably the worst timing of any organization. But Chase defying Chell's order because he's Jack's protege. So he's seen Jack do this. Um, I'm pretty sure during the three years between season two and season three, or however long they've been working together at the time, because so Chase has seen Jack do this. He has seen the results that Jack produces. He's kind of under Jack's wing, so to speak. Even though that's not really the kind of uh, methods that I want to teach my protege, <laughs> you know, I want to, you know, teach him to not do what you do. But 
it makes sense that he would go to Mexico because that's exactly what Jack would do. And he's been learning under Jack for, you know, how long now? So him going to Mexico by himself while ill-advised was exactly what his mentor would do. Chase also does very well when Claudia tries to help him. He manages to escape with her help, and he's very bullish when he gets away. You know, he, he gets to the CTU station, and they're like, what's wrong with you? My hand, but I'm fine. Don't worry. I've been shot there, but I'm fine. I'm fine to lead this team. I can do anything. It, you know, again, it's very Jack. It's very much Chase in this scenario. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that the escape works particularly well. I think it's a little bit uneven. I like the idea of it, and I think it should work, but it does feel a little bit rushed in the moment it feels like they kind of needed you know claudia wasn't going to get out alive i think that was probably always obvious but it did just feel a little bit like you know rushed rushed, yeah it don't know not necessarily rushed in terms of plotting it in terms of having it happen in the episode that it did when it happened it just kind of felt like claudia and everyone else that they've been very well planned they'd sort of they'd taken their time they they spotted their opportunity and they'd gone for it then and they'd actually they'd done as much as they possibly could to avoid capture and then understandably they kind of panic when there's a possibility that they could get caught chase shoots the guy claudia ends up getting shot for it I, you know the back of the truck is open and it allows claudia to get shot. i don't quite, quite get why it just doesn't quite feel as tightly written as everything else that happened in this area mm-hmm. yeah the other thing is that claudia isn't a particularly well fleshed out character a little bit like hector you know she there's no real understanding from our part of to how she's ended up essentially becoming well she's, she's her brother's main guardian um sort of no idea what's happened to uh, her mother obviously her her dad's there um at the far at the ranch being uh, employed by Hector, you know, it's it, it's a little bit a little bit mis- mysterious with that, and her characterization sort of is as Hector's lover who will stand up to him, and also as Jack's former lover. And beyond that, there's not a whole lot to her. You know, she's got that that very Hector was Jack attitude of just standing up to anything. You know, she'll stand up for herself, she'll stand up for her brother, she'll stand up for her dad, she'll do what she has to. She's not scared of Hector, but I don't feel like for sort of 10, 11 episodes that she's in it, I don't feel like that was quite enough for her to be the fully realized character that she should have been. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, they definitely could have done a little bit more to be able to do that, but they're doing that. And then we have back at CTU, we started to allude to some of this here where Jack, uh, where Tony is coming back to CTU and he's resuming his role as the director and moving things along. But there's at least seemingly some different things that come up that make it seem like Tony's not on his game. And so you got Kim that's that's pointing out some things and Michelle's watching it. And of course, Michelle didn't like the whole situation of the fact that she didn't wasn't told anything about the whole undercover mission and things like that. So Tony kept it from her even. And so she's battling with all of that. And, and so then she finally goes to Chappelle and says, yeah, Tony's not on his game. And it, it's a very... They're, they're just like uh, like the forced awkwardness or forced tension put there between Tony and Michelle, which, of course, by this point, we're all rooting for Tony and Michelle after everything that happened in season two and the buildup so far in season three. And then you start seeing this rift come between them. 
But Tony proves that he is on top of things and that he's mentally and physically ready to be able to do what he needs to do. I mean, it's one of the biggest trope things that they do in this season, isn't it? That Tony is shot, he's in the hospital for a bit, and then he comes back. And of course, his competency has to be called into question. You know, you couldn't bring him back when he's just recovered from this gunshot. You, you can't bring him back if you don't go, oh, is he fit for duty? And then cause this tension between him and Michelle as well, just for good measure. It's not great, I have to say. It, it It's not the worst, but it's not ideal, particularly because it kind of comes in once in one episode and then it's fine. Tony's considered to be fine. All of the stuff that's explained sort of Tony has supposedly done wrong is explained away with things that feel like they don't really explain them away. Like Tony having left the source code, I think it was for Kim on her shared volume. That was his excuse. But the dialogue from 20 minutes before that had no correlation to that. And it just kind of feels like, well, you haven't really explained how you didn't communicate that to Kim. It doesn't work that well. I don't feel. Um, but it's the sort of thing that you have to do because it takes 11 minutes ish for Tony to go from waking up in the hospital and talking really quietly and being told that he'll be on his feet in a few days to walking back into CTU. It it comes to the point where it really starts the reveal sets in. Like once Tony reveals that he's been working with Gael and Jack on this master plan about this virus, you could tell by the look on Michelle's face that you know, I kind of offended her in a way because, you know, we've been married, we've been around each other, and I had no idea. So that's when it kind of, that's when the tension kind of started a little bit. And you can kind of see her her reasoning that, you know, we've been, we've been married and we're around each other all the time, and yet you've been able to keep this secret from me. So from a married person's perspective i guess you could see why she was upset but the rest of the tension just felt forced it felt out of place it felt like it was just there i mean i can understand showing you know that okay tony may not be 100 percent. you know he may not be completely fit to run this team i can understand you know showing those little the little hits here and there that tony may not be on his game but I thought, above all else, Michelle should have been the one to stick up for him. Instead, it felt like it was Tony versus everybody else. I felt like that should have been the moment where Tony and Michelle kind of came back together as a unit. And I didn't, I didn't get that. So that was, that was one of the disappointing points for me in that whole scenario because I get the whole showing Tony not being on his game. I understand that part. But I felt like Michelle, as his wife, should have been a little bit more supportive of his decision. And instead, she took the opposite role. And I thought that felt a little forced, especially knowing the relationship that these two people have. It just felt out of place for me. I think it works a little bit better, sort of jumping ahead to the episodes we'll talk about next week. It works a little bit better in the context of when Michelle gets trapped in the Charm Plaza and there's a risk that she might die and Tony sort of worry over the fact that at this point he didn't even talk to her 
couldn't barely, barely looked her. You know, they they fallen out all this stuff. I feel like when when we get to that stage of the season, I think that this looks a lot better in that sense because you again it's a little bit tropey, but it feel it's a you know this is the tension between them. How do they recover from this? Okay, this is how they recover from this because one of them almost dies, and so they can't. They realise that death always that, brings people together. Well, exactly. They realise that the the arguments they are having, obviously, before this in here with about his competency and Michelle not trusting him and Tony not trusting Michelle and all of this, it's just kind of background noise. And then everything else is, you know, that doesn't matter. It's about the fact that they love each other and they have each other still. I I do feel like as the season go on goes on, this looks a lot better. Yeah, true. Of course, after season three, things don't always like peachy keen between them, but. <laughs> But that's for conversation in a couple of weeks. But we also have, at the same time, another storyline that probably is close to the whole Terry amnesia and all that kind of stuff, where we have this baby that gets introduced and Chloe's trying to care for and hide this baby while working. And I don't know, I, I don't like most of it. And so <laughs> it's another situation of, like I said in season two, it's another situation of giving Kim a storyline to justify her existence on the show. And I thought that that's been done way too many times because it, other than that, she just feels out of place. You know, she was doing good as, you know, the position that she had, but they had to give her this little side, this little sidebar storyline to justify the, the amount of episodes that they have her in, I guess. I don't hate it. I think it works quite nicely in the, in the Kim Chase context. And even the actual scenes themselves, I don't mind because they provide some absolutely brilliant slapstick. Like when Chloe is called back into action by Ryan and she goes, well, what are we going to do about Angela? Kim can take her. And just the look of horror on Kim's face is like, why are you doing this to me? It is complete nonsense for a lot of this time. And, you know, we spend sort of three, four episodes of Chloe changing her story from, uh, it's my baby. Oh, it's my boyfriend's baby. Oh, it's someone else's baby. All this it's madness and really annoying and it's only until not until we learn the fact that it's chases i mean that's next week but it's not until then that it becomes relevant to everything else up until then it's just comedy value and i, and I do get a lot of comedy value out of it you that you kind of through the first half of the season you kind of get the sense that chloe doesn't really feel comfortable around kim okay because she chloe doesn't feel comfortable around anyone well especially kim but she tiptoes like when she found the, the vial in Jack's office and proved that he was, you know, on heroin. And Kim just conveniently walks in and asks why she's in her dad's office. And Chloe tries her best not to tell her why she's in her office, why she's in Jack's office. And Kim, you know, being the, the nagging, you know, person that she is, won't let it go until finally Chloe has to tell her that, you know, hey, your dad's on drugs. Um, and the same thing happened with the baby. She did everything she could, brought up every lie to keep from telling Kim that Chase was the father. Even when she was going upstairs and Kim was like, so they're not pressing charges. Nope. And then she goes upstairs. Well, why? I told him who the father is. And then she tries to go upstairs again. And Kim was like, well, who's the father, Kim Chloe? And and finally, Chloe's like, it's Chase. And Chloe just has this look on her face like, why do you make me do this to you? Because this is twice now in less than 10 episodes that I've had to break this kind of news to you. 
and this is why I don't mind it so much. You know, the amnesia storyline with Terry is quite poor Horrible. and comes in the middle of a really, ser- really serious stuff, and then kind of is really irrelevant. The cougar stuff is meant to be really serious. It's meant to be Kim in a life-threatening situation, but it's not. And intentionally hilarious. Leads to yeah, it it leads to some nonsense stuff with the guy in the cabin. This at least is never. It never feels like a really serious thing. I know it's, you know, a child and potential welfare of a child and Chloe kidnapping and, and whatever else. It never feels particularly serious. It always feels the slapstick angle. And then when it stops being the slapstick angle, it becomes relevant to Kim and Chase. And that scene that you just described there is really well handled, I think. So actually, you know, say it's not the best, but I don't mind it at any point. Yeah, true. Makes some good points. So... <laughs> He has his moments. That's why we have Bradley on the show to be able to enhance our enlightenment. But <laughs> but now we come to the Nina equivalent person. I I don't know how to describe that. That's poor description. But we get Sherry that comes back into the show, and David. I have to say that I mean, with as many positive, great qualities that David Palmer has, one of his major flaws is trusting Sherry. And so even though she has proven over and over and over that she can't be trusted, that she's a liar, she's a manipulator, and all these things, he still thinks that she might be able to do some good in this situation. And and uh, spoiler alert, I mean, the whole thing cost him the election, basically. I was going to say that the correct way to describe Sherry is the woman who brings down David Palmer's presidency. Yeah. Because I know, and you know, this is something we can talk about a lot next week when main events happen but you there is this sense certainly re-watching i feel like even watching this anew there is that sort of bad feeling of something's gonna go horribly horribly wrong when he sends wayne out of the room and it's like i need a minute we all know what he's gonna do we all know he's gonna call sherry i think penny johnson jail's name was hidden from the opening credits because um you know shock shock spoiler related reasons don't want to don't want people catching on to the fact that she's going to be in this episode the second that he calls her you just know that this is going to go very downhill very fast for david and like you'd say he, that for all that david is a is a fantastic president the fact that he continues to trust sherry is astounding he threw her out of his his life in season one because she kept going behind his back she kept going behind his back she almost cost jackie's daughter you know all the stuff that she did in that season and decided that he's better off without her. Season two, she, he brought her back, and it turned out that she was working with the guy who helped smuggle a nuclear bomb into the country that was working for the NSA, and she was working behind everyone's back again. And yet, again, he continues to trust her. The worst part is that he's actually right to, because she's the perfect person to deal with Alan Milliken. It's it's a catch-22 situation, and the only way out of the situation is to fire Wayne. And David, principal man that he is, will not do that so yeah that brings down his presidency well done uh, david the thing is is that we got to get credit where credit is due i mean sherry did put her life on the line at the end of season two to try to to bring down peter kingsley so i will give her credit for that in season three season three was probably the only season where i actually started to warm up to sherry a little bit she's still a horrible character but the things that she did in season three were, well, up until the death of Alan Milken, were generally for the good of David's presidency. 
David has a great line in the in one of the episodes where Wayne asks David, "Why would you bring Sherry in here? Why why would you trust her?" And David just looks at him matter of factly and said, "We're in a street fight, Wayne. It's what she does best." <laughs> so David David understands the value that she has, while maybe not having value as first lady or as his wife, when he needs something done that possibly is outside of the boundaries of his presidency, he's going to call in Sherry because not only is she equipped to do it, but he knows that whatever she does, she's going to do everything she can not to link it back to his presidency, not to link it back to him to make it seem like she was acting on her own. And I thought that, you know, the very few positives that Sherry had, that was probably one of them because she did, you know, do what she did for the good of of David's presidency. But at the same time, after the death of Alan Milliken, everything else pretty much went downhill. Everything else pretty much disintegrated after that. She was on the right path up until, you know, she kept Julia from saving Alan Milliken. Up until that point, I felt like she was on the right path. After that, everything went downhill. I mean, these two episodes where the, the ones that are on now, up until she, you know, the, the calls that she's making to find out about Alan's dirty past, and then the episode where she goes and sees Kevin Kelly, uh, the guy who, whose daughter Alan Milliken killed, and then, we, I mean, we get to the end of that episode and she's going to see Julia, I think. Those two episodes we get a very good glimpse as to exactly why David brings her in because very, very quickly she discovers there's stuff Alan's hiding and discovers what it is and who to talk to. And, you know, it takes her an hour. It takes her one hour to find Kevin Kelly and to go and speak to him and to get him to agree to, you know, come forward against Alan Milliken. Everything's problem solved. This is an hour, hour and a half, and she solved David's problems. The difficulty is that the second that her solution goes slightly out the window, Alan Milliken fights back. As you said, you know, she, 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 we're, they're in a street fight. And Sherry down in the mud is one of the best street fighters. The problem is she doesn't know the limits. And so what we do see as we come into next week's selection of episodes is that having spent the first two here being very, very helpful and getting David to within sort of touching distance of escaping Alan Milliken, Wayne gets to stay, his healthcare bill, which again, still is very vague and doesn't really exist. It's a conceptual thing and 24 sort of avoids the political angle as much as it possibly can here. We're, we're within touching distance of that and suddenly Alan Miller comes back, fights back a little bit and Sherry decides to go sort of below ground and absolutely wreck everything, which is, a sh- you know, it's a shame because she'd done such a good job to start with, such a good job in these two episodes and then as we'll talk about at length next week, I'm sure, makes it fall apart. Yeah, describing her that way almost makes it seem like she's the Jack Bauer of the political realm. So like Jack Bauer, it's, it's like when, when they need to get something done, it's going to be dirty, they get Jack Bauer because he's going to go in, get results. And on the political side, it seems almost like Sherry's the same, the same way. The difference is that Jack's actions usually turn out well. Well. <laughs> whereas sherry's turn out badly Although there there is definitely a a, uh, a line of people that have died in the wake of jack's plans too so <laughs> this is true 
at this point, we're you know we're stopping at one a.m. here. We're stopping twelve episodes in. At this point, one person has died as a direct result of the Palmer administration today. Day, day. I say today being one p.m. to one p.m. You know, not the midnight to midnight sort of mm-hmm. days that we consider as being days. One person has died at this stage. There will be more. This is not. This is not where it ends. Yes. There are more people who die. Yes, next week may um, be my favorite episode in the entire series. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the the best way, actually, uh, you know, Alan Miller can sums up Sherry very nicely, saying, uh, "You think you can enlist your psychopathic ex-wife to manufacture lies about me in order to bring me down?" Aside from the fact that she's not manufacturing lies because it's true, you know, your psychopathic ex-wife. That is Sherry in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up for this week and actually if you stay tuned after the closing music i'm going to share an interview i did several years ago with greg ellis his real name is john johnny reese but greg ellis uh he's the one that played michael amador and so i did this interview several years ago so i'm going to go ahead and tack that on to the end of this episode so stay tuned at the end and you'll be able to listen to that it's like a 10 or 15 minute conversation. So I was reminded of that. So I will go ahead and share that as well. And then next week, we're going to go ahead and continue on with this story as Stephen Saunders becomes, comes into play and the transition of the virus and all that kind of stuff. And so we'll get into all of that. Thank you for listening. Uh, Go check out the website, 24faithful.com. You can be able to check out the things that we have there as well as be able to contact us if you want to give us your feedback for us to share on the podcast we would love to be able to do that and until next week we'll talk to you later all right i'm excited today to be able to talk with uh greg ellis uh he played michael amador in season three and so i'm definitely glad to be able to have you how are you doing greg i'm doing really well thank you how are you I'm doing great. I'm definitely excited for you to be able to be with us today. I'm thankful for that. And so uh, just a couple questions here that we want to kind of dive into. And so kind of get your view on um, some of the different things about 24, um, specifically uh, for the time that you were um, part of it. Uh, But before we do that, um, just want to kind of get a little bit of your uh, backstory. How did you get started with acting? Actually, when I was a kid, uh, there were two people um, in my local village who started a drama group for kids, uh, Gene and Clyde Morris. And I um, I joined the drama group, I think I must have been about seven or eight years old. And um, we'd do plays and musicals. And then I would uh, I got a job in a musical in the West End in London. So I would travel down to London, do a play or a musical, and then go back home. And then when I was 16, I went down to London for good and, uh, and continued the, um, the journey of acting. Awesome. Now, you've done several uh, pieces of work with Kiefer Sutherland. Um, how did that relationship start? How did you meet we him? Met, um, we actually met on a movie, uh, I think it was about 12 or 13 years ago, a movie called To End All Wars which was a, a movie about um, a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Um, and we filmed that movie in Kauai, in Hawaii. And it was, uh, 
Kiefer, Robert Carlyle, James Cosmo, Mark Strong, myself, Kieran McManaman, um, and uh, a couple of great Australian actors, John Gregg and Brendan Carroll. And um, it's kind of a bonding experience because we, because uh, of the subject matter, the story we were telling, we all lost uh, a great deal of weight uh, to portray the prisoners of war. And it was a great experience and we were really proud of the movie. And um, so that was the first time I met and worked with Kiefer. Yeah, now you've done some recent things with him. You were on um, Touch, um, at least several episodes of that show. And then you were also... Um, just recently finished shooting Forsaken. That's right, yeah. The, uh, Forsaken's a western um, that uh, we just finished filming up in uh, Calgary in Canada. With uh, Actually, it's the first time Donald and Kiefer have worked together and I actually played father-son in the movie. Um, Michael Wincott uh, was in the movie as well. He's fantastic in the movie. I think he's just joined the, uh, the new... Um, series of uh, 24 um, uh, Demi Moore plays my wife and Brian Cox is in the film as well and it's a great cast and it was directed by um, 24's own John Cassar yeah do you know when that's coming out by chance I do not know there's uh, there's no definite date yet but I do know that um, the movie looks really good I've heard some really good things about it so um yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll be uh, be available for people to see pretty soon. I would, I would imagine the new year at some point. Okay. Yeah, Sorry, I, I can't I, be more specific on that. Yeah, I know I've seen some things on uh, Twitter and Instagram and so forth, some pictures that um, John and Kiefer have shared, and so uh, definitely looking forward to that being able to come out and be able to see that. So, um, when, when did you first hear and see Twenty Four? Did, have you? Did you actually watch the show before you um, um, auditioned for it, or, or how did that start? <laughs> I'm about to say no. I um, I um, I'd heard uh, obviously I'd heard about the show and how successful it was. And in fact, when I auditioned for the show, Kiefer did not know that I was auditioning for the show. Um, I went in and read uh, read for the role of Michael Amador. And um, it was actually, he he called me because he got, I think he got a phone call from either John Kassar or um, Howard Gordon, um, basically saying that uh, you know, I got the job and, and he was very excited and he called me himself. I think I was at the Four Seasons having a cup of tea and um, I answered my phone and he said, do you want to work together again? I said, that sounds like fun. What on? He said, 24, you fool. <laughs> he got the job. So um, so that started the journey of Michael Amador. And originally he was supposed to be around for two or three episodes. And um, I think they liked, the writers liked the character and the way the storyline was going with the Salazar. So they kept writing for him and for that storyline. And then I remember reading, I think it must have been my sixth episode in, I was in the makeup trailer reading the script for the next episode. And on 24 as an actor, you get, you know, you get the scripts and, you know, you, you rifle through them and, oh, I'm still alive. You know, it's usually, <laughs> oh, I, I'm, de I'm dead. It's page 27. And um, I saw uh, 
rushes in. There is a chair, one solitary chair. It's swiveled round and there with his throat slit, dead, Michael Amador. So, yeah, I said, okay, well, you know, it's fun. The front ride, six episodes is fine. Um, <laughs> and then they did a rewrite. And I got the rewrite two days later. And Michael Amador was on a, I think he was on a, a speedboat racing away from Mexico. And, um, and I think I, I believed in that draft, I killed Nina. Um, so I realized that I was going to be around for a little bit longer. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, now, did you wish that you kind of stayed on a little bit longer? Or do you think it was good the way it, the way it ended? Or uh, No, I think it was good the way it ended. I mean, anytime you're having fun on a show, you want to stick around. But um, I think the character at... Uh, had um, you know he'd been around for long enough, and it was it was a good good way to wrap up. Uh, I remember reading in the script when I did eventually meet my demise. It said um, an explosion that no one could possibly ever survive from, and I realised that the hopes of Michael Amador surviving, even even with major burns and injuries and coming back, were very unlikely given the wording of that in the script. <laughs> Yeah. Now, um, let's see. We just have a couple minutes left here. Uh, now, as far as the um, the person or the character of Michael Amador, um, how much of the backstory did you know at the time, or um, or what did you feel about the character itself? Well, there wasn't too much backstory that that um, that I had. So you kind of you create your own. Or you, talk with the writers and um, fill in those those blanks and missing pieces um, and the scripts were very detailed so that would inform one of how how the story was moving along and the interactions with the Salazars and with Jack and especially the big scene I think early on I had the big scene with the um, the brokering the virus doing the deal and the auction um and he was a fun character to play. I mean, he was several suit wearing, very put together, very powerful, um, clinical. Um, never really got too flustered until the end. <laughs> when uh, I think um, it was uh, Jack and um, James Badge Dale arrested uh, Amador. Yes. In the um, in, uh, some seedy bar, I think. Yeah, and um, then I got a bit flustered. But for the most part, pretty cool character. Yeah, I thought so too. So that's why I was excited to be able to talk to you today. Now, have you seen any of the show uh, since then? Have you followed it at all? No, I um, I think I watched the odd episode here and there. Um, but no, I mean, I know I, I've had the pleasure of working some, working with some actors of getting to know some actors who've been on the show, uh, Annie Wershey who came on, uh, touch, uh, for a while, D.B. Sweeney, um, Lucas Haas, um, I was probably too many to mention and some directors I've worked with again since touch, uh, since, um, since 24, um, 
I mean, it's, it's, it, it was such a, an iconic show that, that obviously resonated with so many people and still has a, a huge fan base to this day. But, um, you know, with it, just within the industry, there were so many people that, that worked on the show and are proud to have worked on the show. That's good. Um, now, as, as we uh, close up here, are there any, we talked about um, Forsaken, but are there any other recent or current projects that you'd like to let everybody know about that we can kind of keep our eyes open for? Uh, well, I've just been filming right now. I've been filming CSI, which has been fun. Um, getting to work with Elizabeth Shue and Ted Danson and uh, the incomparable George Eads, who's a real character. I think he's been doing the show for 14 years. And he still loves going to work every day, and um, so I've I've been having a fun time doing that. I've been playing um, FBI Special Agent Sturgis on the show, and this, and, I, and in the new year, I have something very exciting to uh, to start. But I, I can't actually say what it is right now. But um, I'll let you know when I'm allowed to officially say. Okay. <laughs> How's that? Well, very good. <laughs> Well, we're definitely glad for the time that you've taken today for us. And so um, I definitely wish the best in the uh, work that you're doing. And so we definitely appreciate that. And so there's a lot of things that are uh, on your resume. And so maybe we'll put a, a link to that in the in the show notes for everybody so they can kind of take a look at some of the other things that you've been a part of. And so well, thank you, Joshua. It's been a pleasure being here. Hi to uh, all the 24 fans and um I'm sure they're excited for the, the, the reincarnation of 24 that starts filming next year, I think January, the end of January. Um, and uh, they're going to be in for a real treat. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're definitely excited. And so the uh, tension is definitely growing. The excitement's growing. And so uh, we're, we're definitely looking forward to it. All right. Well, uh, thank you. And I uh, do hope that you have a good day, good holiday. Thank you very much, Joshua. You have a great Christmas.